Last week, last week the sermon was about suffering. Last week we learned that as Christians, God asks us to endure suffering for the sake of other people. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're asked to endure trials and difficulties so other people might be rescued, so other people might come to salvation in Jesus Christ. This week, I have a bit of a follow-up to that message. I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever noticed that when you're experiencing sufferings in life, when you're going through a trial or a difficulty, have you ever noticed that it's difficult to think about the future? Maybe this morning, you're experiencing a difficult time of life. Maybe life isn't going the way you thought it should go or the way you think it should go, and you're experiencing a trial. My guess is, is that you're not spending a whole lot of time thinking about the future. I think that most of your time, if not all of your time, you're thinking about the present. You're, think about, you're thinking about what you're experiencing right now. You're not thinking about the future. You're just trying to get through the present. Think about COVID with me for a minute. Now, I know you're sick of hearing about COVID and talking about COVID, but it's a reality in our lives. COVID has placed a burden on us that a year ago we were not experiencing, and this burden gets to be heavy after a while. You wonder whether COVID's ever going to go away. Think about this. This has lasted for more than eight months. For more than eight months, we've had significant government restrictions. We've had lockdowns. We've hadn't seen struggling businesses, failing businesses. We've had to be distant from family and from friends. We haven't been able to engage with people the way we've wanted to, the way we need to. And there are a lot of people that have gotten sick. And some people have even died. COVID places a significant burden on each one of us in some way or another. And it's not just COVID. There's other burdens, there's other trials, there's other difficulties that we face. I know that some of you are suffering right now because you are trying to live for Jesus at your school. You're trying to be a testimony, you're trying to stand for Jesus, you're trying to share the gospel with students, with other fellow students that you go to school with and you're just experiencing a bunch of ridicule and disdain. There's some of you I know who are experiencing difficulty right now because the Christmas holiday is right around the corner and it's just marked by another year of being alone. Some of you are wondering if you're gonna have a job next year and some of you are just hoping to get a job. And then there's some of you who are taking one form of drug or another to kind of numb all this pain and this burden and you're just starting to realize that that's just creating more issues. It's all heavy. It's really heavy. And these difficulties that we experience in the present make it very difficult, if not impossible, to think about the future. 
But this morning I want to talk about why what we believe about the future matters for our present. See, what we believe about our future gives us hope. Hope in the present. And there is hope. There is hope. See, God wants you to know this morning that you are going to make it and this suffering, these trials and these difficulties that you're going through will end. This COVID will end. The suffering of COVID will come to an end. The ridicule and the mocking at school will come to an end. The loneliness will end. If you are experiencing sickness, if there is a something you are dealing with that the doctors cannot figure out, it will come to an end. The financial difficulties will come to an end and the need to self-medicate yourself will come to an end because suffering is going to come to an end and that is the hope that we have for the future. You see, there is hope. Let's open up the Bible and turn to Revelation 7 and see specifically this morning how God is offering each one of us hope. Revelation chapter 7 is found on page 995 in the Bible that's in the rack in front of you if you're here in the sanctuary. And this morning, I would really encourage you, I think we do this every week, but I'm going to really, really encourage you to follow along in the Bible. If you're at home, grab a Bible. If you're at home or here in the sanctuary, turn on your device, Google in Revelation chapter seven and pick the NIV version because we're gonna go through this together. Revelation chapter seven, as we come to Revelation chapter seven, we recognize that this is a pause in the suffering that's been described in Revelation chapter six. It's an interlude to all the destruction and all of the devastation that's been described for us in Revelation chapter six. Remember, Revelation chapter six is the first chapter in Revelation where we begin to see and talk about the future. The things described in Revelation chapter six have not yet happened. Remember, last week we got a brief preview of what is coming. Remember what happens in Revelation chapter six? Remember in Revelation chapter six, Jesus is holding Daniel's scroll and it contains seven seals and only Jesus is worthy to break open those seven seals. Only Jesus can open up those seven seals to introduce the future. Remember, Revelation 6 begins the description of the great tribulation. The great tribulation is a time coming in the future when there is going to be great destruction and great devastation. And in Revelation 6, we see the first six seals broken open. And there is a lot, there is a lot of destruction and devastation. And we haven't even come to the seventh seal from the description of the first six seals, it doesn't seem like anyone could possibly survive, let alone be saved spiritually. In fact, look at the desperate question that's asked at the end of Revelation chapter six in verse 17. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? In other words, who will stand? Who will stand? That question is answered in Revelation chapter 7. Between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seal, during this pause, John sees two visions. John sees two visions of hope. I'm just curious. Have any of you ever wanted to dream like John? Like as we've been going through Revelation, the stuff that Jesus shares with John, the stuff that Jesus allows John to see, these visions, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I had some dreams last night. They're nothing like this. John sees two visions of hope. The first vision is a vision of 144,000 people sealed before the destruction begins. And the second vision is of a great multitude who are worshiping God in heaven. Now this morning, we are going to get a glimpse of these two visions. We are going to get a glimpse of the future. This morning, you are actually, we are actually going to be able to see into the future. But that's not our main purpose this morning. Our main purpose this morning is to look into the future to see how it speaks into our present circumstances. You see, this morning, we're looking at these visions to see how they speak to us today. And the encouragement from these two visions is going to be an encouragement of hope. We are going to experience the hope of Jesus Christ by looking at these two visions this morning. So my hope this morning is that in the midst of your trials and in your difficulties, you are going to experience hope. Hope in the midst of suffering. Now let's dig in. Revelation chapter 7. Immediately after the question and the cry, who is able to stand? Look what John writes in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now here, six of the seven seals have been opened, but before the seventh seal is opened, God declares this pause. During this pause, John shares this vision, which is in the nature of a flashback. He sees here what happened before all of the destruction began. Now, in the flashback, look what happens. Four angels are seen withholding something that is about to come upon the whole earth. We're told that they're holding back the four winds of the earth. The winds here? are a symbol of devastating and destroying power. Have you ever seen the destruction that's brought on by a Category 5 hurricane? Maybe you've been in a hurricane and you've experienced the winds. Maybe you've just seen the result of the destruction on TV, but the destruction of a Category 5 hurricane, the angels are holding back that level of destruction and that level of devastation that's about to be released. But before that happens, something needs else needs to happen. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. 
Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The four angels are told to hold back. They're told to hold back until a very important group of people are sealed by God. These servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. Throughout history, sealing, like imprinting with wax, meant three things. First, it meant a transaction had occurred. Second, it was a sign of identification and ownership. And third, it was a sign of protection and security. So here, this seal shows that these people are redeemed by God. That's the transaction. They are God's servants and servants for God's people. This is God's ownership. And then thirdly, they're protected by God himself. This is a special group of people who have been identified as servants of God and they therefore have been sealed by God. Then in verse four, we're told exactly who they are. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Natali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. I deliberately read the entire list because I wanted to emphasize to you what the text emphasizes here, and it's actually quite straightforward. This text is referring to ethnic Israelites, physical descendants of the sons of Jacob. Later in Revelation chapter 14, we are told that this 144,000 people are followers of Jesus. These are Jewish Christians who have been called and sealed by God. Now throughout history, there's been a number of people, groups, number of religions that have claimed to be this 144,000 people. Jehovah's Witnesses, Worldwide Church of God, some Seventh-day Adventists have all claimed to be this 144,000 people. The problem has been when their numbers go above 144,000 people, it creates a bit of a problem for them. Others have claimed that this is the church. This may be a reference to the church, but that's not the case either. The text is clear. These 144,000 are Jewish people called by God and sealed by God out of the tribes of Israel. Now, this group of 144,000 people, you need to know that they are sealed for a purpose. 
This group is sealed for a purpose. This is a group that is going to be able to stand during the great tribulation. But in addition to standing in the midst of a great tribulation, in addition to standing in the midst of great suffering and great persecution, this group has a purpose. They have a ministry that they are called to. This group is called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This group is called in the midst of the great tribulation to preach Jesus to all who will live listen to his gospel. They're there to preach the good news and Satan will not be able to stop them. Satan will not be able to hold them back. Satan will not be able to destroy them because God has given them a purpose in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial. And they are going to stand in their purpose until their ministry is fulfilled. Now let's look at the result of their ministry. It's revealed in John's second vision. Look at verse nine. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. John starts this section after this. After this, after this, after the first vision, concerning the sealing and the salvation of 144,000 Jewish people, John looked and he sees another awesome sight. Look what it says he saw. He saw a great multitude that no one could number. An innumerable number of people, more than anyone could count, John sees this great vision, this great picture. And the positioning of these two visions seems to indicate a cause and effect relationship. The 144,000 people, Jewish people, were called and sealed by God. They're followers of Jesus Christ and they are the instruments that God uses in the midst of the great tribulation to lead a great multitude, an innumerable number of people to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to notice a few other things. First, not only is this an innumerable number of people, but look what it says. This multitude will include people from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. This group is gonna consist of all nationalities, all skin colors, all cultures. This is a group that knows no racial, no economic, no national distinctions. Can I get an amen? amen? Praise God. There is going to be a multitude of people made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every language, no cultural boundaries. We may have our prejudices and our biases, but Jesus has no prejudice and no bias. He welcomes everyone into his kingdom. Everyone who calls on his name for salvation is welcome into his kingdom. Second, notice that they're standing before the throne and before the lamb. This is the second group that is standing. They're standing in the presence of God and Jesus. This is a place of privilege and honor. Third, they're clothed in white robes which symbolize Jesus' sacrifice at the cross which has made them pure from sin. 
Fourth, look, they're holding palm branches. And these palm branches suggest joy and worship as well as victory. They have overcome. And now these people in their victory are overcome with praise. Look at verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This multitude lifts their voices in an anthem of praise to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. They're crying out and worshiping, singing songs of praise over and over again because they recognize that Jesus has provided them salvation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine millions and millions and millions of people worshiping God and the Lamb standing before the throne. Then, as John watches this powerful scene, one of the elders approaches him and asks, verse 13. These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? John answered, sir, you know. And the elders said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. John is told that these are people who come out of the great tribulation. The text in Greek literally reads, the tribulation, the great one. This multitude is made up of people, maybe some who died of natural causes during the great tribulation, but most are martyrs. They're martyrs killed during the great tribulation. These are people who are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These are people who are killed because they proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ. These are the people referenced in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, who were slain because of their testimony. They were slain because of their witness. So it's clear. During the great tribulation, countless people of all nations will come to know Jesus in spite of all the destruction, in spite of the devastation, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the persecution. God is still at work and God is still choosing to demonstrate his mercy and his grace. And during this time of great, of the greatest suffering, God still chooses to save people. This is confirmed in verse 14. Look what it says they did. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now this is a bit confusing. It's a bit of a paradox. Robes made white by blood? I wouldn't try that in your laundry at home. It won't work. But it does work in God's kingdom. 
This is talking about salvation. The only way that sins can be washed away is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that I can do to lift the burden of our sin, to lift the burdens of our brokenness that can only happen through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And what is happening here is the point is, is that these people acted in faith. They trusted in Jesus and his work on the cross and God justified them imputing or crediting the righteousness of Jesus Christ to them. So when God looked down from heaven and saw them, he saw them in white robes, completely pure, all the sin, all the burden wiped away because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. God chose to save them. And then John takes us back to the picture of the people standing around the throne of God and listen, I want you to listen, listen, read, listen for all the blessings, all the rewards that are identified beginning in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Did you hear? Did you hear all the blessings and all the rewards? First, this multitude finds themselves before the throne of God. They are in the very presence of God himself. They are no longer separated by distance they're no longer separated by sin. They're no longer separated by time. They are standing in the very presence of God himself. Can you imagine that? In the very presence of God. And they are home with Jesus. Now remember, these people are in heaven because they were martyred in the great tribulation. And I'd like you to think about this. The very worst thing that Satan could do to these people was kill them. And it turns out to be the very best thing that could happen to them. They are actually in the very presence of God. Second, look at what they get to do. It says they will serve him day and night in his temple. Yes, they're in the presence of God, but they will be carrying out God's will. They will be worshiping him in his presence. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, mm, not sure, that sounds kind of boring. I promise you, it is not ever going to be boring. Third, look at what God provides them. 
Remember, these people are saved out of the great tribulation. They had experienced great suffering and pain along with everyone else on earth. But because they were Christians, because they were followers of Jesus, their suffering, their persecution was much, much greater. They literally and likely experienced famine. They went without food. They experienced thirst, no water. They experienced extreme limitations and hardships, but now we are told that because of what God has done, because of what the lamb as their shepherd has done for them, there will be no more hunger. There will be no more thirst. God is going to provide them all the food they could ever want, and Jesus is going to walk them to the streams of living water so that they will thirst no more. Be no more suffering. No more trials, no more difficulties. And then look at the last thing. Can you imagine, think with me for a minute, what these people went through during this tribulation? Think about the persecution for standing up as a follower of Jesus, for declaring that Jesus is Lord. Everything stripped away. The burdens of this world placed upon them so great that it was almost impossible to bear. Can you imagine the tears that were shed at the loss, at the loss of everything for Jesus? And here, it says that Jesus is gonna wipe all those tears from their eyes and they'll never ever cry again. No more suffering, no more trials, no more pain, no more of life's discouragement. All of the tears will be wiped away and forever they're going to experience the presence of God and his comfort. Revelation 7 provides us this glimpse of salvation during the great tribulation as well as a glimpse of a multitude worshiping God around the throne. We get to see into the future, but this message is not about the future. This message is about the present. As we look at the hope given to us through these two visions, we step back into our present circumstances and recognize and realize that because of that future, there is hope in the present. So I have two applications for you this morning. Two applications, one application from each of the visions. First application from the first vision. If God seals 144,000 Jewish Christians for protection and purpose during the great tribulation, he certainly can and will seal you for protection and purpose today. Did you hear what I said? If God seals 144,000 people during the great tribulation for protection and purpose, he certainly can and will seal you for protection and purpose today. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have declared him your Lord and Savior, he has marked you. 
He has placed his seal on your forehead. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It says, when you believed... When you believed in Jesus, God marked you. He sealed you. He placed his mark on your forehead, which just like he did for the 144,000, he has done for you. And what does this mean for you? Number one, it means you are his. You are his possession. He redeemed you at a costly price. And now he owns you. And the beautiful thing about his ownership is it means he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and someday he is going to return to bring you home to heaven. Number one, it means you are his. Number two, he has sealed you for your protection. He has sealed you for your spiritual protection. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to experience difficulties in this life. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience trials. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience suffering. What it does mean is that in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the difficulties, and in the midst of the suffering, you are spiritually protected. Satan cannot defeat you. The power of God is yours. The power of God is yours to live and exist in this life and it is to bring you back into eternal life where you too can be around the throne. Thirdly, if you are his and if you are protected by that seal, he has also called you to a purpose. Just like the 144,000, are called to purpose in the great tribulation. You too are called to a purpose. You too are called to stand for Christ. You too are called to live for Jesus. You too are called to share Jesus's truth with those who come around you, for those you go out to. You have a purpose in this life, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the difficulties. Your purpose is to stand for Jesus and live for him, proclaiming his truth. My friends, do you realize we are in a spiritual battle? Do you understand that we are in a spiritual battle? Look what the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual forces of evil. They are real, and and Satan wants to destroy you. Do you understand the sufferings, the COVID, the loneliness, the sickness, the mocking, the financial difficulties, even the substance issues. Satan is trying to use those sufferings and those difficulties to destroy you. And the battle is, is that God is trying to use those same sufferings and those same difficulties 
to bring salvation to people who we come in contact with. You see, your sufferings and your difficulties give you credibility in this world that we live in. God is saying, I have purpose for you in those. And I'm going to use them, not only for your good, but for the good of other people so they may come to know me. And if you are here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, if you have not yet committed to him in faith and you're going through a trial or a difficulty, I'm here to tell you this morning that he's using that trial or that difficulty to bring you to a saving knowledge of him. He wants you to understand, he wants you to know that this world is not all there is and that hope is only found in Jesus. We are in a battle. But the good news is you are sealed for the battle. Secondly, the second application from the second vision, if God blesses and rewards a great multitude for their obedience, God is going to bless and reward you for your obedience. If God rewards and blesses a great multitude in the great tribulation, he is going to bless and reward you for your obedience. If you haven't yet figured it out, there is a theme that is coming out of Revelation chapter six and Revelation chapter seven. And the theme is, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're gonna experience some trials and some difficulties. No Christian avoids tribulation. But here's the thing, you are not alone. God has a purpose and a plan in those sufferings and in those trials and the result of going through them with obedience is blessing and reward. I think a lot of times we come to Revelation 6 and Revelation 7 and we get a bit discouraged. There's this great tribulation that's going to happen in the future and it causes us to be a bit down. But what I want to tell you today is this is not a message of defeat. This is a message of victory. This is victory. These people from this great multitude lived their lives in obedience and the result was blessing and reward. It's the demonstration that our present sufferings cannot compare to the future glory that is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. Your blessing and your reward is coming. It's not just for the martyrs of Revelation 7. It's for you who are obedient, who are diligently and faithfully following Jesus Christ. You too are going to be in the presence of God Almighty. You too are no longer going to experience hunger or thirst or difficulty or trial. You too are going to have every tear wiped away from your eyes. This is not a message of defeat. It is a message of victory. These two visions, the vision of the 144,000 and the vision of the great multitude, these visions of the future give us hope in the present. And there is hope. But you have to understand, the way you view the future impacts the way you see the present. I'd like to briefly close with a story. 
there were two men who were captured and taken to a dungeon. The first man, before he entered the prison, was told that his wife and his child were dead. The second man, before he entered prison, was told that his wife and his child were alive and waiting for him. After the first few years, the first man withered away and died. The second man, after being in the dungeon for 10 years, emerged to experience life with his wife and his child. See, the future impacts the present. These two men experienced the very same circumstances and difficulties, yet the outcome was completely different, and the only difference was how they viewed the future. How do you view the future? Do you believe that one day you're going to die and just rot in the ground? Do you believe that this life is all the happiness that you will ever experience? Do you believe that civilization is coming to an end and there's no one that's going to remember anything or anyone who ever lived? That's one way of looking at the future. This morning, we got a glimpse of another way to look at the future. Do you believe that one day you are going to be in the presence of God himself? Do you believe that one day all of your sorrows, all of your difficulties, all of your trials are going to turn into unspeakable joys? Do you believe in a judgment day where every evil, where every bad thing is going to be judged by Jesus himself? Do you believe that one day you are going to be with Jesus? Two very different ways to view the future. depending upon which one you choose, there is hope. Jesus offers that hope. The hope for the present. My prayer, my prayer for you, is that you choose Jesus and experience his hope. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.